Good morning. It's lovely to have everyone here today. And uh, it's great to again see some, some fresh and returning faces. And uh, how lovely to have so many kids. You know, it was full before, and now there's space. Isn't it amazing? Lovely. Speaking of Sunday school, one week uh, they were learning how God created everything, including human beings. And Johnny, well, he was especially intent when the teacher taught him how Eve was created out of one of Adam's ribs. Later in the week, his mother noticed him lying down as though he were ill. And she said to him, Johnny, what's the matter? And Johnny responded, I have a pain in my side. I think I'm having a wife. <laughs> there was another little boy who was visiting his grandmother. As she was in the kitchen making lunch, the little boy was thumbing through the pages of the family Bible on the coffee table. And as he turned one of the pages, all of a sudden, a finely pressed leaf fell out of the Bible onto the floor. And without missing a beat, the little boy shouted out with excitement into the kitchen, Grandma, I think I just found Adam's suit. <laughs> Today, we begin chapter one of the story. And as we work through this together, Adam's suit may not fall off the pages, but I tell you what, God's truth will fall off the pages and his truth truth will change your life. Is anyone up for some good life-changing truth? Well, the story, we are doing that today. It is chapter one, and that is all about creation. And we are embarking on a journey of over 31 weeks, and it's going to take us from the beginning of God's story to the end, the greatest story ever told. We have the story broken into five smaller movements. There's the five different colours or thereabouts of those. And there's the story of the garden, which we start today. Then there's the story of Israel, the story of Jesus, the story of the church, and the story of the new garden. It's kind of back where we started, hey? And today I want to unpack the paragraph that summarises movement one. So the first movement, it's a bit hard to see, but right over here is movement one with, uh, with Genesis. And the first sentence of the paragraph about movement one reads, in the upper story, God creates the lower story. If you brought your Bibles, then turn with me to Genesis chapter one, and we, as we uncover the first activity in the story of the garden called creation. The very first sentence of the Bible is powerful and many of you have probably memorized it. Ready? Let's all read it together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in the first four words of the story, we are already introduced to the main character of the story, God himself. Everyone and everything else finds their life and breath and their being from him. How do I know this? Because the next seven words tell us, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And I want to pause here and, and just talk about Genesis 1 and 2 for a second. Because it's not intended to be a science book that uncovers the age of the earth or even the process in which God used to put it off. God could have used these two chapters as a science book. He has a way, though, in which he pulled all of this off and, and he could have told us. But that's not the intent of Genesis 1 and 2. Now, from my study and my point of view, it is completely appropriate to hold to a young earth creationism point of view, which means God created the earth in six earthbound days, therefore leaving our earth rather young, but with the appearance of age. Sort of like, you know, when you go and look at the genes that you find at the gene shop, and you've got all the genes that are already torn and ripped and got holes in them, the appearance of age, but actually quite new. <laughs> right? That could have been what's happening here with the earth. God could have done creation that way. Or you could hold the view on the other end called theistic evolution, which suggests that there is a gap of millions of years between Genesis 1, 2 and 1, 3, or that each of the six days represents longer periods of time than 24 earthbound hours. The main point that if you agree on then we can be friends, is that God is behind creation. The story starts with a big bang, but it's not an accident or by chance. We need to conclude that God started with nothing and created all we can see and everything we cannot see. Once you conclude that there is a creator God, frankly, he can do what he wants whether it's over a billion years or whether it's in a nanosecond. Genesis 1 and 2 is really all about embracing a proper view of God himself. Now we move to the whole point of creation. Why did God do all of this? Well, it comes down to a magnificent garden God created called Eden. And the Bible tells us it is located where the Tigris and the Euphrates River intersect down by the Persian Gulf in modern-day Iraq. Can you see the little tree I drew for you on the, on the map? That's where it is. In this garden, God places his crowning achievement, the apple of his eye. He creates us. God created all of the universe and the two trillion galaxies that we've found to date to display his glory. And he does his best work right here in the northeast, I reckon. But his ultimate objective comes down to, all, to, to, to who he created and put in that garden. Man and woman. Adam and Eve. Which leads to our second sentence. His vision is to come down and be with us in a beautiful garden. The Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the community of God, simply desires to come down and do life with the community of humanity. God is all about family. In the first pages of the Bible, we see what matters most to him is relationships. But God he wants to know if Adam and Eve embrace the same vision. And so he instills in Adam and Eve something that is different from the rest of creation. 
He instills with humans the freedom to choose. To give Adam and Eve a way to declare their decision. He places two trees in the middle of the garden. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they ate from the tree of life, it would signal to God they embrace his vision of life together. If they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would be signaling to God that they were rejecting his vision. That leads us to the second part of the story in the garden. The next sentence reads, The first two people reject God's vision and are escorted from the garden. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which leads us to the fourth sentence. Their decision introduced sin into the human race and keeps us from community with God. The Bible tells us that the moment Adam and Eve took of the forbidden fruit, but by the way, you know, some scholars and, and psychologists um, have gotten together and they've delved more deeply into what this actual fruit was. And as they delve deeply into this, they've actually declared that it wasn't an apple at all. Psychologists conclude that there is no way that, that these two people would ever give everything up for an apple. They have now concluded the more accurate the forbidden fruit was chocolate. No, no, no? Okay, well, well, anyway, when they bit into the fruit, whatever it was, they declared their decision, and at that point, something changed in their nature. Sin began to run through their bloodstream. They now have two choices, signified by the name of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Before... Adam and Eve faced all of their decisions with only one option in mind. But now, and for us as well, there are two options. There's the good option that is right, moral, good for the sake of others. And there's, there's the other option that is warring within us. The evil choice, which is immoral all about me getting what I want at the expense of others. And that's one of the best definitions of sin there is. And Adam and Eve are now faced with that warring within. We get this, the signal this has occurred by asking, what is the very first thing Adam and Eve do after they bite into the forbidden fruit? Well, the Bible says they clothe themselves with fig leaves. Why? Well, now they're looking at each other and instead of just having good thoughts about each other, now an evil thought emerges. For the first time, they feel shame and they feel vulnerable. They cover up to protect themselves from the other person. And we have been in this defensive mode ever since. Then we come to Cain and Abel. You know, the Bible tells us that this single decision affects all of us today. And how do we know this? Well, in Genesis 4, we're introduced to Adam and Eve's two boys, Cain and Abel. 
God is pleased with Abel's sacrifice, but not with Cain's. Cain has, he has two choices. One choice would be to say, I need to learn from my brother Abel about how to bring a good sacrifice to God so I can be more pleasing to God. And we know from the story that jealousy and anger rise within Cain's spirit so much so that God visits him and says to him in Genesis 4, 7, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. That day, Cain chose evil and he killed his brother, signifying, that something, signifying something very important. The sin nature is passed down automatically through the seed of the father. And Cain acted on it. The psalmist writes, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalm 51.5 You know, it's a very difficult biblical principle to wrap your head around. But just like my dad gave me my receding hairline, he also gave me his sin nature, which he got from his dad, who got it from his dad all the way back to Adam. It doesn't seem fair, but we must embrace it. Raise your hand if you're a human being. I don't see everyone's hand raised. Where are you from then? Raise your hand if you're a human being. Now, if you're a human being, it means that you're descended from Adam which means from the womb of your mother, you were conceived with this sin nature. This sin nature keeps us from God and the garden because the way we treat people is not appropriate for the beautiful life in the garden. Here's what we'll see over and over and over again through the story. When humanity is left alone apart from God, the expressions of evil get worse and worse. This is precisely what happens in the unfolding of the first pages of the Bible. From Cain killing his own brother to the time of the flood, sin escalates to the point of the despicable. Genesis 6 records an act where some believe evil male angels are taking human women and producing an offspring called Nephilim. It's hard to wrap our minds around this, but what we know is that it is a deplorable act against the design and pattern of God. And let me give you a, a modern day example. It's like society saying it's okay for boys to go into a girl's bathroom. It's the same thing where, where something so outside of the design and pattern of God is being suggested by people who don't even think it's wrong. Whenever society gets to that place, God has to intervene. And this is exactly what he does. Genesis, five, uh, Genesis 6, 5 to 6. Oh, I got the verse wrong on the screen. Excuse me. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. See, this is the most awful declaration we can hear from the lips of God. He regrets that he made us. 
But the story doesn't end there. We're going to discover that God wants us back. Even in the state of our wickedness. You know, there are going to be many things I'll be able to give you insight into and unpack for you about the Bible as we journey over these 31 weeks. But one thing I'm going to have a hard time helping you understand is why. Why does God love us and pursue us so severely in our state of rebellion against him? Why? Well, that leads us to the next part of this movement, and that's the flood. At this moment, God gives a promise and launches a plan to get us back. The question is, how? God has plan A to get us back that makes perfect logical sense. Look at Genesis 6, 7 to 8. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. The, the, the plan makes complete sense. Let's start over. Let's, let's just wipe it all away and start over. Let's wipe out everyone because the evil has gotten so significant. We'll start over with our very best guy in the human race, a guy named Noah. And if we start over with the best guy, let's see if we end up with a better end product. So that's what he does. Noah builds a gargantuan ark and collects all the animals and the family and God closes up the door and a massive flood hits the earth wiping out everyone except for Noah and his family and the animals. When it's all over, they open the door of the ark, they step out and start to rebuild, not from the seed of Adam, but from the seed of Noah. They're going to see if this fixes the problem and leads us back to God. Did plan A work at getting us back to God? Nope. One really big problem. Noah and his family took the sin virus from Adam. They took it on the boat with them and walked off the boat with it. It was only a matter of time until sin raised its ugly head and it did in what happened right after the flood. In Genesis 9 verse 20 and 23 to 23, we read about one night when Noah gets drunk from wine that he pressed from the vineyards that he'd planted and he passes out naked inside of his tent. One of his sons named Ham walks in on his dad and finds him naked and he's got two choices. A good choice would be to cover up his father and save him from humiliation or he could make the evil choice which would be to go out of the tent and tell his brothers and bring them back to make a mockery of his dad. The choice he took was evil. He went out and got his brothers. They, however, out of respect, walked in backwards with a blanket and covered the naked body of their dad without looking at him. Because in that culture, it was shame upon the person who viewed the naked body, not the naked person themselves. It may appear to be a small matter, but it signals very clearly that the sin nature is still resident within all humanity and plan A didn't work. 
As a matter of fact, God says, and I paraphrase, this plan didn't work. We don't ever need to do a flood again. No matter how much it rains, and we've had some pretty good rain recently, haven't we? Did anyone else get flooded last night? Think you had to find where the nearest ark was? It, uh, it doesn't seem like it's ever going to stop sometimes in the middle of those bits of rain. God promised he wouldn't flood the earth again, though, and he gave us the rainbow to remind us of this promise. I love going outside after a torrential downpour, although not with the humidity. When it's not humid and you get this really nice downpour of rain, just as the sun peaks out again and, and seeing a beautiful rainbow... It reminds me that God kept his promise. But keep in mind the promise is not based on the fact that we deserve it, because we don't. The promise was made because plan A didn't work in accomplishing God's desire to get us back into the garden and restoring our relationship with him. Just like sin escalated after Adam, so it happens again after Noah. Over time, after the flood, when humanity is left alone apart from God, evil always escalates. And this time, as we come to the end of the first movement in chapter 11 of Genesis, we see this is the creation of the Tower of Babel. At this time, everyone spoke one language. They got together in one location to build a tower to the heavens for the purpose of building a name for themselves totally apart from any allegiance to God. If they are successful, this will seal the deal and keep them eternally separated from God. But God steps in and he graciously confuses their language to weaken their ability to work together to save them from themselves. God is going to do this throughout human history. Whenever humanity escalates in its evil such that it's going to change the outcome of God's story, the one he promises to write from beginning to end, he always intervenes in the story. He confuses their language and the project called the Tower of Babel fails, thanks to God. No, no really, thank God because he's the one who intervened. So God says, plan A didn't work, time for plan B. What will it take to get us back into the garden with God? What will God do next? Remember the story at the beginning of the message about Adam's suit falling off the pages of the Bible? Well, in that story, there is a clue that God has given us. Do you recall what God did for Adam and Eve? I mean, if you look at Genesis 3.21, he replaces their fig leaves with the skin of an animal to cover their nakedness. He is signaling to us that the solution to getting you back and covering your sin is going to require the shedding of blood. You see where this is going? Which leads us to the last sentence. The rest of the Bible is God's story of how he kept that promise and made it possible for us to enter a loving relationship with him. The story is just the beginning. Plan B, which in reality was always God's plan A, is going to work. 
Stick around. Let us unfold chapter after chapter and we're going to all see the extent to which God went to get you back if you want it. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come to the realisation that you are a gracious God through your actions and activity throughout the greatest story ever told, throughout the Bible. Lord, we see that you have a plan for us. We see that you created this world for us to live in, in all its glory and splendour, yet it's not as glorious and as splendourful, if that's a word, as what you intended it to be for us in that garden. But Lord, you have a plan to get us back there. And we look forward to seeing how that plan unfolds over the the coming three months, uh, three, three terms and, and a bit ahead. Lord, we pray that, that you would help us lock in with what your story is. Lord, in the upper story, what you are doing throughout history. In the lower story, as we delve into the lives of different characters through the scriptures, we see how you worked out your plans and purposes on an individual basis. The upper story, the lower story. May you help us understand, Lord, the lower story that we are in right now is still part of your upper story. And Lord, you want us back. Lord, you have given us a way to come back and we will unpack that and I look forward to celebrating that together when we come to that part of the story. And uh, Lord, I pray your blessing upon each one of us here today that, Lord, we will continue to know you more deeply, more intimately, that we continue to, to understand and, and experience your grace in our lives and the gospel that always saves and brings us hope. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Why don't we stand and sing?